Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, <coughs> grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Well, thank you. It's, um, isn't it lovely to pray a passage before you get to preach it? That's amazing. So you've all, you're all alert to some wonderful truths in God's Word today. My name's Richard Trist. I'm the Dean of the Anglican Institute here. I look after all those preparing for Anglican ordination uh, with Anthea, uh, as well as that I teach a number of pastoral subjects, including preaching. And this semester, we've got a great treat because the preaching class that I'm teaching uh, will be preaching for us after Easter. We're going to go through the Acts 1 to 8, I think it is. So you'll be there to support your, um, your fellow students as they preach to us. But of course, if they're putting their head on the chopping block, I have to put my head on the chopping block as well. So my class is assessing me today. Okay? So they'll be filling out various forms about Richard, and we'll talk about that later on. But as I remind them, of course, I get to assess them as well afterwards. <laughs> So they've got to be kind to me. Let's pray, friends. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an awesome and great God. And this passage just reminded us of how great you are. And our prayer today is that as we open the, look at these words afresh, that you, your spirit might speak, not just to our minds, but to our hearts. And then ultimately that we might translate that into our hands and our feet, that we might serve you. So encourage us, teach us be with us today through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. If you've ever had the chance to see a symphony orchestra in full flight, you'll appreciate that unity is a great thing. Many years ago, I was part of a church community which was blessed in having a 50-piece orchestra play about every six weeks. And on those particular Sundays, the atmosphere in the church was electric. You'd walk into the church and there were all the players tuning their particular instruments. The violins are over there, the woodwind and the brass were over here. And then the service would begin. The conductor would stand up and we'd all start singing the opening song, and can it be, or whatever it was, accompanied by this majestic, all-embracing sound. Now, of course, all these people, about this number here, as it were, had to be squeezed onto the front platform. So we clergy were squeezed at the side between the kettle drums and the French horns. <laughs> I was expecting to have my ears deafened, but somehow when the music began it was the opposite. Different people playing different notes on different instruments made out of different materials, but when it all came together, there was wonderful harmony and beautiful music was made. Now, in many ways, this is a picture of what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in this passage from Ephesians 4. The big theme of the passage, of course, is unity and how relevant to us as a college community starting out together this year. For the Ephesian Christians to whom Paul is writing were just like us, a diverse group of people from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different ages, yet brought together for a common cause into one body by Jesus Christ. 
And the big question I think for us today arising from this passage is this. How can we sustain the unity we have in spite of our differentness? How can we ensure that the differences between us do not overwhelm us, but rather they do the opposite, but bring us into ever-deepening relationship with each other? And Paul starts these words with a challenge. Look at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, says Paul, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul's just been extolling in the first three chapters of this letter the great and marvellous God who's devised his amazing plan of salvation for his people. The heart of this plan, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ. In him, chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption. In him, chapter 2, verse 21, we have a new identity where Jew and Gentile together form a temple indwelt by God's Spirit. And what's God's purpose in all this? Chapter 2, verse 15, to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And now in the second half of this letter, from chapters 4 to 6, Paul describes the implications of what God has done. What are we to do in response to all that God has done for us? Answer, to live a life worthy of this calling to which we have been called. To walk in ways that are consistent with that which reveals God's plan. He calls us to match our conduct with our calling, our passion with our purpose. And I want to suggest there are three things that Paul's calling the Ephesians and calling us to do from this passage today. In verse 2 to 6, he calls us to strive to maintain our Christian unity. In verses 7 to 13, he calls us to serve one another with our God-given gifts and abilities. And verses 14 to 16, he calls us to speak words of truth that will help God's people grow into Christ-like maturity. So first of all, verses 2 to 6, strive to maintain your Christian unity. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, says Paul. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I'm sure you've maybe heard the old-fashioned piece of prose that goes like this. To dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> Now, if we find it hard at times to put up with some of our fellow Christians, just think how much more difficult it would have been for these people to whom Paul was writing. He's writing to Christians, of course, in the bustling coastal city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was one of the major pagan centres of the ancient world. How hard it would have been for monotheistic Jews living in Ephesus to be continually surrounded by the polytheism and pagan practices of their next-door neighbours. But now imagine that as a result of hearing the gospel, these same monotheistic Jews, but now worshippers of Jesus, suddenly find themselves sitting next to a group of these ex-pagan idol worshippers. Yes, there would have been an overlay perhaps of Roman civility, 
But underneath, I'm guessing, their own natural cultures and personalities would have led to some friction. And of course, we see this as a constant theme throughout the New Testament, Jews and Gentiles in one in the church. And thus, Paul begins by saying to this church that a life that is worthy of God is a life that is characterised by four cultural virtues. Four countercultural virtues, I should say. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other in love. Humility. Someone has suggested it's not thinking of myself less, but rather thinking of myself less often. Trying to see things from others' perspective rather than my own. Gentleness, sometimes translated meekness. Being able to be self-controlled under pressure. Patience. The word is a compound of two words, one meaning anger and the other an adjective meaning a long time. You might say being slow to anger. Being willing to put up with irritations and difficulties that you find annoying. I suspect it'll be around about week six that you'll need this particular virtue. <laughs> when essays are due, and suddenly you look around and discover how annoying everybody else is in this college. <laughs> Bearing with one another in love. Now these words may seem fine to us, for we've heard it all before, but for the people of the ancient world to encourage such virtues or to see them as something good and to strive for was a foreign thing. One writer at the time, one writer says, to be Greeks and Romans, such virtues were little more than a vice of nature. They were weak and mean-spirited virtues. They were inconsistent with the self-respect which every true man owed themselves. In other words, slaves can do that sort of thing, not for ordinary respectable people like us. But Paul calls for a different way for those who were once far away but have now been brought near by Christ. Why? For we've been united, he says, by the Spirit, by the bonds of God's peace. That is, just as Paul was bound to a guard by chains, so we are, by the work of the Holy Spirit, bound to each other in peace and love. We're held together by this peace and love of Christ and we are to work hard at maintaining that. Now, of course, he makes his point. He goes on to by affirming this point by following the four virtues with seven great unities we have in Christ. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. We don't have time to unpack those. But seven amazing unities that in spite of our differences keep us together whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're from a Sudanese background or a Chinese background, or whether you're a true blue five-generation Aussie from the bush background. <laughs> we are one in Christ. And friends, we are called to do all we can to maintain this unity, which is a gift from God. What does it mean for us practically? It can mean many things. But let me suggest 
One way to start is by deciding to become people who focus not so much on what is different or divides us from other Christians, for that usually leads to criticism and judgmentalism, but on what unites us with others. Someone once made the point there are two types of people in the world, those that divide the world into two types of people and those who don't. <laughs> and it's often we who, we who call ourselves evangelical Christians who are most prone to do this. I was intrigued recently to find in a book that was written by an evangelical Anglican against a spirit of divisiveness, a section that did exactly what it was purporting to say was unhelpful. He wasn't dividing Anglicans into high church, low church, broad church, but he divided them into P-types, E-types, R-types and C-types. It sounded like, felt like I was reading Myers-Briggs meets the church. <laughs> There are times, of course, where we do need to do this in order to understand where people are coming from, but it ought only be as people whose underlying desire is for unity and growth together, not for continued fights over old issues. Strive, says Paul, for Christian unity. Secondly, verses 7 to 13, serve one another, says Paul, with your God-given gifts and ability. There's a Peanuts cartoon in which Lucy demands that Linus changes the TV channels and then threatens him with her fist if he doesn't. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, said Linus. These five fingers, says Lucy, individually they're nothing. When I curl them together like this, they're a single unit. They form a weapon that's terrible to, un un terrible to behold. What channel do you want? said Linus sheepishly. <laughs> and then turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organised like that? <laughs> now, Paul's been speaking of what's common to all believers, but he moves in these verses to the different gifts God gives to each of us individually. And we are all to play our part in the building up of the body. As individuals, like Linus's fingers, we may be nothing, but together, when we use our different gifts to serve one another, we can do great things for God. To each one of us, says Paul in verse 7, grace has been given. Earlier he's talked about saving grace given to us by Christ. Now he's talking about serving grace. Grace given to us as Christ has apportioned it that we might serve one another. Who is the giver of these gifts? Christ is the giver of the gifts. He quotes then Psalm 68. This is why it says, when Christ ascended on high, he took many captives and he, gives, he gave gifts to his people. Then little brackets about who is this Christ? He was the one that descended. He served us on the earth, but now he's ruling. He's ascended. He's higher than all the heavens in order that he might fill the whole universe. This mighty Christ, this ascended ruler and king, he's won the battle, he fills the universe and he has the power to shower on his people all his gifts of grace. He did it on the day of Pentecost and he continues to do it today. The king continues to lead his church. The king is continuing to raise up new leaders for his church. He continues to enable the growth of his people by pouring on 
each one of us, each one of us, his grace, his gifts, his particular abilities for you. Now Paul lists some of the gifts, or the New Testament lists about 20 odd gifts if you look at all the various passages put together, but here Paul mentions those key leadership gifts needed in the church. He speaks of Christ giving, himself giving to the church the apostles, the sent ones, those commissioned by Christ to proclaim the gospel. Christ given to the church the prophets, those who speak direct words from God to his people. He's given evangelists, those particularly gifted in explaining the faith to unbelievers, and he's given pastors and teachers. That, of course, may refer to one person or two people. I used to think it was a done deal, pastor-teachers, but now I've just been reading a commentary that says, no, actually, it's not a done deal. We think there's actually two separate ones, so I'll leave that for your New Testament scholars to work out. But he's given pastors to the church who are called to shepherd God's people and perhaps a separate group of teachers whose job is to teach the church. They don't necessarily have to have a pastoring position, we just don't know. But what he has given is gifts to his people of these leadership gifts. And what's the purpose of the gifts? Verse 11, verse 12, to equip God's people for works of service. Why? that the body of Christ may be built up. This is the key thing. Paul wants his readers to hear and he wants us to hear perhaps through the Spirit. Grace has been given to each one of us in order that we might serve each other. If it's preaching, brother and sister, preach. If it's teaching, teach. If you've got the gift of singing, sing. Now, when you come to college, many of you may not be 100% sure what it is that you're called to do. But friends, this is a safe place to try and discover those things. Ridley's a perfect place to try and discover, with the help of others, your gift and your calling that God's given on your life. The way to discover it is not to hold back and wait for some special vision from God, or for someone to tap you on the shoulder, the best way to discover it is by getting on in ministry and serving. By serving God's people and seeking to build them up by whatever skills and natural abilities you might have and passions, you'll soon find out. And when you find out, don't hold back. Keep doing it till the end. Strive for unity. Serve one another with your God-given gifts and ability. And thirdly, Paul says to these people and says to us, speak words of truth to each other. Speak words of truth that will help God's people grow into Christ-like maturity. Verse 14, as a result of all this, he says, these gifts given to the church, as a result of our humility and our gentleness, our patience, our bearing one another love. We won't be infants anymore. 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. That's the danger. Without teachers and preachers and prophets and others to guide us. Instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. We're called to speak the truth in love. Some of us are great at the first part, speaking the truth, but we don't have much love. Others might be good at the second half. We're full of love, but we don't have much truth. We're called to speak the truth in love that the body of Christ would grow up. Gordon MacDonald was a famous American Christian author whose ministry collapsed as a result of infidelity and betrayal of his wife. And he wrote a very powerful book after this experience and after he'd been brought back into the life of the church through a period of repentance. The book's called Rebuilding Your Broken World. And in this book, he speaks of the need for all of us to develop relationships with people who will speak the truth with love into our lives. Intentional relationships. He writes this. If we are to successfully defend ourselves against misbehaviours resulting from our broken world experiences, he says, it will be because we've set out to develop some significant personal relationships that offer mutual accountability. A glance at a motor race on TV one day caused me to think of this issue in a new way. He said, in the middle of a race, a car and its driver pulled off the track and into the pit. Instantly, a team of five men swarmed over the car. One poured fuel into the tank, two others checked and replaced tyres, one checked engine fluids, while another talked to the driver about racing strategy. And he said, I heard the words of the TV commentator say, this pit crew is the key to that driver's victory. If their work is speedy and complete, they can gain advantage for their driver over the competition. They can send their driver and car back to the track with the energy, the strategy and the capacity to win. And McDonnell says, as I watched them work, I came to see we all need to be part of one another's pit crew. I need others who will inspect the tyres and the fuel in my life. I need others who will discuss my racing strategy. And just as badly, I need to join the pit crews of others. In each case, the objective is simple. Help one another win. Friends, can I urge you, certainly while you're at college, certainly in your churches, help one another win. Use the life and ministry groups to seek accountability to others. Give others permission to ask deep questions. How are you going with God right now? Are you spending time alone with him? Are you still loving him with your heart as well as your mind? The purpose of it all is that we might live lives worthy of the calling we have received. Strive for Christian unity. Use your God-given abilities and speak the truth in love that we might grow into Christ-like maturity. It's an awesome vision. Requires our part to pay, be in it as well. We've got, some, we've got intentionality in this is called for. Let's do it for the sake of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing letter of the Ephesians that uh, 
We've seen part of it today and we just pray that you would continue to unpack the truths of this into our hearts. Lord, where we perhaps have some fractured relationships at the moment, where there's a bit of disagreement, help us to be people of unity and peace and work out how we can do that in the situation. Lord, for those of us who have perhaps are struggling uh, with a sense of call or what are we here for or what gifts do I have, I pray that you would help each of us help one another discern our gifts and our calling. And Lord, for each of us, all of us here, help us to speak the truth with love that your body may grow into the beautiful maturity which it is in Christ Jesus. We pray this for his sake. Amen. Amen. That's awesome. Thank you, Richard. Uh, we're going to stand and, and sing.